Welcome to Dig Beneath Design, a podcast where design professionals share how they communicate their work. I'm Sanaya Norton, landscape architect, and after 20 years of practice, I've seen how communication can make or break a project, no matter how great the idea. So I'm going out into the industry to uncover the best design communication strategies and tips to help us be more effective, more articulate designers and get more great ideas off the ground. At 23, my first guest had just finished uni. He had zero clients, no work, but big plans for the future. Now, Sasha Coles is a successful landscape architect and director of Aspect Studios, responsible for multi-billion dollar projects across Australia. He pitched his way up, honing his message, owning his ideas, impressing clients and winning their trust. Find out how he amps himself up before a big meeting and what he thinks are the biggest mistakes designers make when communicating their ideas. I'm chatting with Sasha at the Sydney studio in inner city Redfern, a converted warehouse space above a weightlifting gym. Today, a couple of people have brought their dogs in. There's plants, bikes, drawings and models everywhere. Sasha's drinking a green tea and wearing blue suede boots. Let's get down to the good dirt on Dig Beneath Design. My name is Sasha Coles and I'm the director of Aspect Studios, um, which is a national company, so actually an international company. We've got offices in Shanghai, Adelaide, Melbourne, Brisbane and Sydney. And my particular role is to lead the Sydney studio as well as be a director of the company. When Aspect started, it really was built on passion and purpose and enthusiasm of, of those things coming together because we had no work. I had nothing. Um, I'd come from university. I'd worked for a few firms, you know, that were small, like two Sydney firms, Spackman and Mossop, and then Anton James when he was by himself, and I was his first sort of employee. And that, that was good, and that lasted for a little bit, but then I just, I just really thought, you know, I, I want to do this. I want to have control of this. I don't want to be working necessarily on projects and for people that I don't lead. And that was a pretty naive thought at the time, but it, it definitely came from somewhere. So when we started having no work, not knowing how to run an office, not even knowing how to file anything was probably not an advantage to me. But what I did have was purpose and this idea that I wanted to be in the design conversation. I wanted to be doing something in Sydney, the city that I love, and doing something internationally and doing work that mattered. You know, I just really wanted to be there. And I would look at these different firms internationally and think, I, I, can, I know I can do that. I can match it with these people, you know. And it wasn't a competitive thing. It was just like, I want to be a part of this community. So what I did here was then look around at mainly architects who were working in Sydney at the time. And it was early 2000s, late, yeah, sort of early 2000s. So medium density housing was a thing. It was just starting and courtyards were happening. And there was some interesting architecture being done. And I just would ring up and proactively market these guys and just get on the phone and say, hey, you know, you don't know me, but I love your work and I love this and this and this about it and we're just starting our practice and would you meet us? And more often than not, people were pretty generous. There's some firms that, you know, that we work with now and I giggle because I could never get through the, you know, the front door with those guys ever and I understand that they're busy 
whatever, but those people that gave us the opportunity, I still hold in seriously high regard. And I actually think of a lot of them as, as mentors for me. So um, starting out those first initial collaborations, people that gave us a go, I was like an absolute sponge listening to everything, understanding, trying to get the language, the technical language about architecture and design and the way they thought and then marry that up with the way I thought. Do I like it? Do I not? What's my position? But it was an excellent way to try and work out who I was in this very wide landscape of design and where I wanted to be. And how old were you at that time? I think I was 23, maybe 23, 24. Do you remember any of your first pitches to win work? You know what? Looking back, it's a blur. I don't actually recall any specifically. I remember being terrified many times before presentations. And indeed, it's probably not the first ones, but it's probably when Aspect actually got serious and when um, we were doing presentations where I was actually a core part of the, the presentation team and they were relying on me for the success of a multi-million or multi-billion dollar project. And that was the first time where I just thought, shit, know your stuff, get your stuff together. The audience is far sharper than me. The jury is far more experienced than me. What am I doing here? Um, Obviously, I'm doing something right if I'm here. So work to those strengths. And so for those bigger pitches that you started to feel the importance of and people were looking to you to, to bring this thing home, do you remember how you prepared for that? Yeah, look, I think the, the key thing and the key message I talk to my guys here about is you are the expert, always. You're up on stage, you're in front of people because you know your stuff, you know your message, and if you don't, you're in trouble. I mean, that's just fundamental. There's a couple of things. One is being truly authentic to yourself. Don't try and fit to your audience. It's never going to work. You're never going to be what you think they want you to be. You have to be yourself. And you have to be the expert. So that doesn't mean you have to be arrogant. It doesn't mean you have to um, force information down anyone's throat. But you really have to be confident in what you know. And you're up there for a reason. Um, So if you're confident in your work and you know it actually better than anyone else can because you've lived it, then that's a source of comfort for you because you've got to fall back. You're the expert. So yeah, I think like being authentic being who you are and knowing your work are the two most important things. And then confidence can come through experience. Like it's terrifying the first few times. It is, I mean, for everybody. And then there are a set of tools. I mean, there might be things that work for people. Like I always have a particular pen or if I'm doing something special, I might even, you know, wear my my dad's watch which um, gives me a sense of connectivity to something bigger than just this urban project that I'm presenting. You know, it reminds me of who I am and that I've got larger things in life that connect me to the world. So that, they're just little things that I do that I happen to do and I've always done. You know, I don't know how you communicate that to other people because they need to find that out for themselves. But, you know, not forgetting who you are, I think, is the message. Any particular examples come to mind? There was one particular large developer had a a kind of a workshop, which I think was on a Saturday. And so I thought it's casual and I rode down and, you know, I'd ridden from Surrey Hills down to where they were in the city. 
I didn't have a lock for my bike, so I had to shoulder my bike up the stairs and in their big meeting room. And, you know, I was late, of course. So everyone turned around and they're all there in their suits and kind of much more formal gear than I would imagine for a Saturday workshop. And it was high level executives. And so I felt, okay, here's the, uh, here's the young kind of, you know, stereotypical designer, creative, all these eyes on me. What went through my head was, okay, who is he? Is he gay? Is he a greenie? Is he, you know, left-leaning socialist kind of, who is this person? And you, you cop all that if you're kind of authentic and you're yourself, which is fine. I think people generally like being surrounded by people who are complementary, who are different, if they're excellent at what they do. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, as long as what you're bringing to the table is the best in class and you're an expert then that stuff doesn't matter. And in fact, it's probably an advantage. So in your firm, who normally presents designs? That has changed quite considerably over the last couple of years. So the Sydney studio of Aspect's been around for 17 years. So about the year 2000 we started. And really it's, it has been my role primarily to lead the presentation and the the ideation process and the communication of that with clients, like for most of that time. But it's not actually in the last couple of years, that's changed a fair bit. And um, just through natural succession and, you know, mentoring and development of people within the organization, I'm doing still a lot of that, but it's actually the next layer of people are doing an immense amount of that presentation. So it's, it's really spread. What kind of things do you do here that help your staff develop those skills as they're working on these projects and going out and presenting them? What do we do to develop their skills? Well, some of it is just organic. Um, some of it happens by joining me in presentations and seeing how I work or how Kate, my studio partner, works. Part of it with our firm is being thrown in the deep end, I have to say. We all started without any formal tutoring or without any kind of mentoring, really, any structured mentoring, and we had to do it ourselves. And so I think that's in the DNA of the company to a degree. We just expect people to sink or swim. And it's probably not the best way to do things because communicating and presenting ideas is tough. It's challenging. Of course, when you're starting out doing it, it's terrifying. And it's very personal and it shouldn't be because you're communicating ideas and things which are actually quite objective. But no doubt, inevitably, you think people are judging you rather than your ideas. Can you tell us about your tiny talks? So tiny talks are a great way for us to, in a very informal way, learn from other people. So we have that on every Friday and literally it's a 15 to 20 minute very casual conversation from either someone inside the office or we bring in externals as well from a range of different professions just to have a conversation about how they work, what they do. It's not necessarily because we want to get anything from them. We're just eager to learn about something else. And sometimes you ask your staff to present an idea in only a few minutes. Yeah. Yeah, that's really important because If you haven't re-rehearsed something, and often you don't have the time to really rehearse something, you can go off on tangents of your own making that aren't necessarily suitable for your audience. And so giving people timeframes is super critical and we're firm on that. And it means that they have to 
conceive their ideas in a structured way and think about hierarchy and think about you know narrative and think about the message that they're getting across in a set period of time. And that's a technique which can be learned and that's a technique which is super useful. So people get the opportunity to be not critiqued by their peers but they just are able to be seen by their peers. And I think the first time is pretty daunting but then after that, you know, it's a very supportive environment just doing it here first. The other thing we do as a business is we have these meetings called All Aspect, which is once a month. And so each of the different studios, which are all very similar, they're just different in size, but they're, you know, it's very low-key and family. We have two projects presented by juniors in each studio to the entire Aspect community, which is about 150 people now. Do you so, all get together? Yeah, we're all at sort of VC, so it's a video conference. And, you know, you might be sitting in Shanghai or Melbourne or Brizzy or Sydney and we'll have relative juniors who are working on projects present the project from their perspective. So they haven't been directed on how to do that by anyone else. It's just they've been given a time. You've got five minutes. You're going to talk about the project you're working on. And in that case, most of them have actually rehearsed and they take it seriously. But that's been a really great thing to, to watch. Yeah. How important do you think language is to a designer? We're visual communicators. Mm. How, yeah. how much do we need words? Language is, is everything. It's a, you know, that is our verbal tool that we're using to create environments in people's minds. So it's fundamentally important. The problem I think that we have as designers with language is that we are taught through either media or academia to try and overdo expression through multisyllabic words which are technical and specific to architecture and design and they, they don't relate to the real world at all. And so I find here we have graduates that come out and talk about, you know, interstitial spaces with unique materiality, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just, guys, what, what the hell are you talking about? Okay, Interstitial is a lovely word, but you could easily say it's between these things. Or materiality, do you mean materials? Is that what you're talking about? Is it brick or timber? And so I think it's really important to bring it back to everyday language. And yes, you can evoke things that are emotive through language, and that's really important. But the biggest issue I have with design speak is that it's exclusive. People use it as a, as a crutch when they don't really understand what they're talking about or they don't have a strong idea and they use these kind of multisyllabic words. That's an example where language is used poorly. But I think language is, is, is fundamental to, you know, communicating great ideas to people. And I, I just, more I do it, the more I think the simpler, the better. Do you recall design juries at uni? I remember actually that I was not bad at presenting. I, I felt like I wasn't terrified. I would see some people in that context and, you know, you could actually see the red starting on the top of their chest and coming up their neck and then overtaking their face and you just think, oh, I'm so sorry for you to have to go through that because it's a, it's a physical revelation of your inside <laughs> right now, your inside mind. Um, and I knew I was never like that. I was always nervous presenting to, you know, a jury of experts but I knew I could do it. I guess the one thing that I, I didn't have and I 
absolutely didn't have was how to compose a narrative or how to compose an argument as a student. I mean, you're learning all of those things. You know, I would probably be naturally confident in talking to anyone anyway because I, that's my personality and I, I like people and I think that's an important thing that, you know, you, you can learn that. Um, which is really about empathy, like who are you talking to and what do they want to hear? But I had no idea of how to compose a, a pitch or a, you know, how to present my design ideas succinctly. You know, I would ramble or you know, just be caught up in the moment and then realise, wake up halfway through a presentation and think, what the f- hell have I been talking about here? You can swear on this show. Okay, what the fuck have <laughs> I been doing here? Where am I? Um, and then pulling it back to the boards on the page. But, yeah, that was, that was the biggest failing for me, I think. Yeah. And are there any aspects of performance you feel to it? Were you a bit of a performer as a kid? Does that help when you're now in the, on stage? Or Yeah, that's a really interesting thought. I don't really know on reflection of that. In terms of performance, you are centre stage, you are performing, and there is a kind of a, a way of being on stage with the way you're moving, the way you engage with people. I mean, all the professionals will talk to you about eye contact and will talk to you about hand movement. And I find that stuff a bit, just, just, I just don't want to listen to that because I just find it all a bit formulaic, but it's actually right. I mean, it's actually true. You do need to engage with your audience. You do need to look at them, make them feel involved and also, you know, change your presentation the vibe of your presentation, the energy of your presentation to the audience reaction. And again, that's another thing that I would probably tell people is that whilst you've rehearsed something, this is not your opportunity to get through your presentation in five minutes flat exactly as you've rehearsed. The more experienced you are, the more you can adapt your presentation to the audience. If you see people highly engaged, really at the front of their seat, then great, you're doing something fantastic. If you see people wandering off or looking at their phone or whatever, maybe you need to change. Maybe you need to focus on them or, um, you know, clap loudly or do something or move or, you know. Have you done that before? Has that happened to you? Yeah, all the time. I mean, I I always look at the audience and think, this guy doesn't, he's just so bored. He doesn't care what I'm talking about. So maybe I'll just flip this around and, you know, move towards this person more. If I know my stuff, that is not a problem. Because I don't have to think about my work, I can think about communication and presentation. And that gives me a lot of confidence. Yeah. I want to know um, what your toughest audience has been. Have you had any really challenging experiences presenting a design? I think probably not presenting a design because that's where I feel is my comfort zone. That's where I feel like I know more about this than anybody does. Whether you like it or not is up to you. That's not my issue. You might hate it. That's fine. But I'm not going to be challenged by that because that's your opinion. The things that I find challenging are where I'm talking to my peers. So, you know, probably doing a presentation at an institute conference or talking to people about issues because I'm a generalist and I'm interested in a whole lot of different things at the same time, you know, I'm really interested in the social aspects of design. I'm, I think of myself as a humanist. Um, and so I'm interested in the, probably more the, the social side of what we do, but I have a kind of a, a very strong environmental background. So, I mean, I, I, I'm passionate about environmentalism. 
Um, but I don't know a lot about that. And so if I present something that crosses over into a very particular world where my peers are far more educated than I, I'm super conscious of that. Do I know the information? Am I making something up? Are they thinking he knows nothing about this, you know? So that's the toughest for me. Um, the easy the easy parts, I think, are when I'm presenting a conceptual design and there's a design process that I'm talking about and I'm trying to distill that down into something which is really tangible and able to be understood by community members, whether they're kids, non-English speaking background, whatever the audience, you know, even professionals in that regard, I love that because I'm talking about ideas and I'm talking about things that I've been deeply involved in. What about um, critical feedback? So not necessarily bad, but when somebody's really kind of questioning your work or your presentation. Yeah. I think what I've learned from that, and this, this is one thing that I try and teach people here, is that more often than not, you're presenting to a client and you're, pres- you're, you're there because you're an expert and you're giving your opinion, your advice to someone. And that's often it's technical, but often it's a design, you know, it's a piece of design communication as well. So that's, it is subjective. And sometimes your clients are far more, I was going to say erudite, but far more informed than you are and will actually be able to speak on your terms to you in a way that surprises you and you think wow these these guys really know their stuff and sometimes clients are trying it on with you as well trying to push you as well because they do know things and they're trying to challenge you and maybe it's an ego thing maybe it's just because they're interested but they're trying to tell you that they know a lot about your area of practice and I would advise it instead of being competitive in that environment accept it. So that is a fantastic idea. Yeah, you're right. You know, you've picked up something really good there that we hadn't thought about. And that's a a general piece of information that I would teach these guys in here is that no one's really out to critique you as a person and and you don't need to take that personally. You need to understand that it's probably just going to build on your work if you accept that there's going to be information, advice, critique coming at you. And to take it on, accept it. And I think that's a, that's a really liberating thing. If you can say, yeah, you're, look, you're right, client or colleague or whoever you are, you know, you, what you've said is, is brilliant and uh, we might just use that. And then you find that that actually unlocks a whole range of things that they feel like, oh, this person's listening to me. My idea is a good idea. They like my idea. Let's be friends. You know, this is a good relationship. So it's a good, again, it's a good tool. And I think it's about comes to that point of empathy as well is sort of understanding things from someone else's perspective um, and where they might be coming from. What are some of the best collaborations you've had with other disciplines? As you would imagine, as a landscape firm, which is running a whole range of different projects, we're collaborating um, intensely and every day on projects. And the best ones are where the silos are not really clear, where you are all in and you genuinely have respect and you want the best. I suppose it's just like a relationship, right? It's like an intimate relationship with people. Relationships don't work if there's not trust and there's not a situation where you genuinely want the best for your partner or your collaborator. Um, So I've found the ones that don't work are ones where there's kind of internal competition. And it might be like those 
the horrible relationships that you, you see in the street or in a cafe or whatever where these, these two people shouldn't be together. They're arguing and they clearly don't want the best for each other. And it's the same in a collaboration. You know, you are there because you've chosen to be, hopefully, and you want to have fun. You want to explore design ideas from someone else's perspective and you're there for the project. That's it. You're there for the project, not for yourself, but you want the project to be the success story. And they're the best collaborations. So there's a few architects who we work with in particular who we just love because we come together and there's no competition. It's a shared experience about what are we going to do for this particular project and how can it be the hero in it. Sometimes you don't get the chance to choose though. Sometimes mm. you might get thrown together with, with a bunch of people or various consultants where it does become a bit of a battle. Sometimes collaborations that we've been involved in have not been great and they have been very competitive. And to be honest, my response now is to just not even fight, is just to get out of it, walk away. I, I've only got a certain amount of time to give my efforts to design and this profession. I don't want to be in a little competitive relationship with someone who is not there for the project but there for whatever other motivation but sees us as a threat. Not a great outcome. So if you can walk away from it, if your business allows you to do that, do it. Focus on things that are more rewarding of your time. You've got a lot of great messages for um, young graduates and people coming up through the profession. Is there anything that you would say to yourself, just say you could look back and say to your young self starting off aspect, anything you know now you wish you'd known then? Of course. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the main thing is that you gain from experience is knowing where to put your energy, you know, and when. Um, I think when I started, I was just like a headless chicken, you know, that sort of just energy going everywhere. And I had it, you know, and I had passion. And so it was out there in the world and, and probably not with a lot of direction because I was learning about who, who do I want to be and where do I want to put my energy. So I think that's the thing that you, you get with experience is that you come to, hopefully, you, you know, you come to peace with who you are as a person and you're not everything to everyone. You can't be ever. So make a decision on where you want to be and focus your energy in that way. And uh, it comes back to that you know, much used word about authenticity again, but it's true. You know, you have a set of beliefs and morals and ethics and stick to those and then no one can fault you. Thank you so much, Sasha. That was fantastic. Pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast of Dig Beneath Design, here to help you in your daily design communication challenges. So I'd love to hear from you, what you think of the show, what you want to know. Tell me the design communicators that inspire you. Or maybe there's a great story from your own experience that can help your fellow designers. Find more interviews at sndc.com.au forward slash Dig Beneath Design. Dig Beneath Design is brought to you by SNDC. Original music by Adam Jones. Sound and photography by James Norton. Engineered and mastered at Sound Kitchen Sydney. I'm Sunea Norton. Join me next time for more good dirt on Dig Beneath Design. <laughs>